Hi, I'm Sahel Janasari, and welcome to the Qualitative Applied Health Research Centre's mercifully shortened to Quark podcast series on anti-racist qualitative research. In this series, we look at whether, how, and to what extent qualitative health research can contribute towards anti-racism and decolonization. We take a journey through qualitative research, exploring how theoretical framings, topics, the process of doing research, the results of research and sharing findings can impact and contribute to the cause of anti-racism. Today, we're very lucky. We've got with us Dr. Ricardo Chumassi, who is a lecturer at King's College. Do you want to introduce yourself, Ricardo? Thanks, Sahel. I'm a lecturer within the IOPPN, and my research interests are all around equality in the workplace and health in the workplace. Um, I actually think those are quite connected. If we have an equal workplace, that is ideally a more healthy workplace. So I'm generally doing work trying to reduce discrimination, uh, change stereotypes, and decolonize a whole bunch of different aspects of academia. Wicked. So can you tell me a bit about the Stolen Tools Journal and how we got started with it and how it plays into some of the interests you're talking about? Yeah, it's really interesting how we first got started. So we were putting together some research methods module um, stuff. I remember you'd pre-recorded some great lectures on qualitative research. And I remember the first time I contacted you, I was, I was emailing you, asking you, how do I pronounce your name? Because I had to do an intro to your lecture for that week. Um, so that was like how we first got in contact with each other. And then I remember you talking about yarning within um, that lecture, which was really interesting because the previous year I'd been at the Australian Psychological Society's uh, conference in Adelaide, and they talked about yarning and yeah, it was really great to see that being used as an example of uh, non-Western ways of gathering knowledge. And then from there, in that kind of mutual respect of each other's attempts to decolonize, as you said, like to hand fist it into any teaching you could, um, you invited me to join your application to the REEF, the Race and Inclusive Education Fund for some money to start up stolen tools. And as soon as you said, hey, you want to start an anti-racist journal, I just thought, right, I'm in. It's the kind of thing that needs to happen. And there's so much inequality within publishing. There's so much marginalization within academia. It just spoke to me instantly. So yeah, we um, collaborated a bit on that. Uh, you were successful getting that funding. And then since just the other day launched the website, which looks amazing. And I feel like you're doing some great work in turning some of the really toxic parts of academic publishing on its head and actually saying, right, we're not just going to be gatekeepers having a limited non-diverse group of people saying what knowledge is valuable. Thanks, Ricardo. That, that's very kind of you. Um, I just want to know, so what do you think this journal can achieve in terms of trying to tackle racism in academia or more broadly in terms of like health inequalities? Like what, what can it do? I think you can do so much. I think it's really well-timed. So after the death of George Floyd and the resurgence and the kind of popularity of the Black Lives Matter movement, I feel like a lot of people who hadn't really engaged with inequality, especially for uh, racialized groups, started to, especially in academia, started to make nods to this. Like almost every academic institution released a statement on race inequality, and you had the Welcome Trusts. Not only statement, but also their recognition of their part that they played within systemic racism within research. Um, and we have all these massive changes in our realization of something that through my whole life I've 
known deeply and then through my academic career it's been something i've been really passionate about researching and now 2020 it feels like it had some real importance and nature recently had a special issue where the white editors stepped aside and had four associate editors of color and that just that spoke to me so much having a journal like nature realizing okay we need to be quiet and listen to some other voices here and understand what's going on with inequality in the field. Quite amazing. There's a special issue of a really interesting journal within my field called Organization Studies, which is doing the same thing as Nature. They've got four guest editors of color, and I'm, I'm currently writing a, a paper on inequality within publishing for them. So there's a lot of change that's happening now. And what Stolen Tools can do, I think it can get a lot of younger people who hadn't thought about publishing into, um, into the possibility of publishing. It can mentor a lot of younger people. It can give people a voice that haven't had it before and do a lot more to change a lot of the questionable things like the re reviewer too. We can just stamp down on that process. I think peer review is a good process, but I think it should be open. I think it should be constructive. I think there should be more mentoring and less gatekeeping. And I feel like you're doing all of those things. And that's what I feel Stolen Tools can add. What what else, Sahel, what do you think Stolen Tools can add? I think you've um, very nicely and succinctly summarized all the hopes we have for the journal. I think maybe one thing to pick up is trying to show how knowledge can come in so many different forms and we need to value knowledge coming from all backgrounds, all different sort of educational statuses. And, you know, I remember, for instance, reading Fanon's um, Wretched of the Earth, and it's basically almost a stream of consciousness. It's... Um, or is it black skins, white masks is, uh, uh, is more of stream consciousness. But, but, you know, it's not like lots of referencing. It's kind of really raw and really spoke to me. And I think that's something that maybe has been lost a bit in academia or a lot in academia. That's sort of not appreciating different types of knowledge. I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned Wretched of the Earth. That's on my new decolonized module. That's like one of the core readings. And I'm a lecturer that kind of currently spans a lot of psychology, but also some psychiatry and in, in terms of mental health at work and stuff like that. And as a researcher who's been interested in diversity, and I've been really quite passionate about reducing discrimination, I only really engaged with Fallon's writings in about 2018, about four years ago. And even though I remember reading the um, forward by Sartre of the Wretched of the Earth and just being like, wow. And I love um, Marx and, and Das Capital. And to not have found out about this in school when I was reading Das Capital says it all. Like, there are history teachers who could have guided me towards Fanon, but they wouldn't have, even though this book came out in what, 61, 62. I'm so happy you mentioned uh, Wretched of the Earth. I feel like this is our ability to now guide things in a more pluralistic in terms of voices direction where we can now say hey these are people that need to be read i mean the section on violence is hard to read within the wretched of the earth i actually this is in the forefront of my mind because there's i'm doing a lecture on that particular book and it's it's difficult because uh fallon talks a lot about how violence is, can be a liberating force and it's one of the only ways to overcome being colonized is to take back power through violence and part of the reason it comes quite stream of consciousness is he was uh, he was going blind at the time, and he just uh, uh, recorded this, and then it was transcribed from from that while he was really ill in his last year of life. It's amazing that he was able to write something so brilliant in that particular state. But also, it was written at a time where Algeria were fighting for freedom, and through the activism he was doing and the work as a psychiatrist, seeing these really shocking cases. Um, I'm, I'm just so happy we actually haven't talked about that book before. But yeah, that, I haven't read Black Skin White Masks, but I need I need to read that one as well. Um, tell me a bit about 
um, your views on Thelen? Yeah, so I found that book really inspirational, um, Rush of the Earth, and I agree with you about some of the really sort of tricky and frank and direct ways that Fanon speaks to the reader about how decolonization happens. There's no real sugarcoating. There's a lot on mental health generally in Fanon's writing. So I find it interesting that violence is a part of the method of decolonizing the mind and cleansing the mind. So I found it really, really inspirational. And I used it in my research as um, one of the main sort of theoretical authors I was drawing on. So when I looked at people's experiences of the asylum process and kind of framed that as a post-colonial encounter between the home office colonizer and the um, colonized uh, asylum applicant and Fanon was really, really relevant still in helping me interpret my findings, helping me for instance, the role of the diaspora, I found really interesting that the diaspora aren't necessarily pro-migration and how the diaspora can sort of interpret the colonizers' words for the people who are being oppressed. And that kind of speaks to a lot of what Fanon was talking about in intellectual classes who actually are sometimes complicit in colonization. So it's really, really fascinating. And I think it's quite relevant because we did a series just now where we looked at how we can use theory in qualitative research, because qualitative research can be a bit atheoretical. And this sort of stuff really push you to think much, much more deeply about what people are telling you and in a more historical way. Yeah different lenses of history and also having that freedom now as academics i think you definitely have that now as a as a postdoc and i'm sure you did, did as a phd student to be able to cite someone reference someone obviously i think you're lucky to have the advisors that you had as well um i think has some really useful things to say about some really really difficult topics yeah absolutely so i wanted to ask you a bit more about the process of Decolonizing academia is quite a buzzword, I would say. Everyone is decolonizing in some way. And yeah. um, even EDI is starting to use that sort of terminology. <laughs> They've co-opted it. Sorry, I find that so funny. I, I did a talk recently um, for a housing association, a charity, and it was the EDI department that asked me to do this talk. And I'm critical of EDI. I think EDI is a bandage on a severed limb. It's, it, it's often a PR exercise. Sometimes there are really good people trying to do really good stuff. But in my view, decolonization is radical change, recognizing historic inequalities. And it's the transfer of power. It, it's it's revolutionary in my mind. This is where decolonization in my mind came from. When you think back to um, like the origin of the term and uh, countries taking back their freedom from colonialized power, it's, it's a different process to EDI. I actually don't do EDI work. Yeah, I, I would argue that my work is much more towards um, decolonization. And, and when people read the work that I've done on uh, the equality, it makes sense that I have these utopian and radicalized ideas that often aren't ever going to be implemented, but this is the change that we've seen. So obviously, the we think of decolonization in the higher education context. We're talking about 2015 and um, the Rose Must Fall movement, South Africa, and then it moved over to Oxford and through the U UK. And it started off being about getting rid of these old white men, getting rid of these old statues. And I think the reason for that was it's a very grassroots movement and it was 
about people without power saying, hey, I don't want to be taught this. Why is my lecturer white? Why is my curriculum white? Where are the other histories? Where is the rest of the world? Where's the recognition of pluralistic voices? And so I'm now in this position of power um, where I'm an academic at a Russell Group University. And I've recognized that what I have to do and what I try to do within my efforts to decolonize, I mean, I've recently been lucky enough to have a module approved, um, which is called Decolonizing Mental Health Research. And within that module, all I'm trying to do is give back power and recognize diverse voices. Some ideas that came in there from Abby Hoffman and System of a Down, there's a lecture called Decolonize This Lecture. It's just blank. It's like, steal this album, steal this book. And the students are going to tell me what to put into that lecture. Their marks are decided by them. They're going to assign themselves 15 credits. Somehow, um, the higher-ups of the university have recognized the need for this. Um, I actually had an interview with uh, with Fumni a few weeks ago, and she was really particularly impressed in, at that part. And I was able to do that from having this idea that came from a group of uh, masters and PhD students who are my advisory group, realizing we need to give power back and then having some support from the university. I mean, it's not been without its pitfalls. This should have actually launched a year before, probably thought it was too radical. Correct, it probably is. In terms of decolonization, there is a continuum. On the softest level, it's just changing a reading list, adding a few black authors, uh, Janissari here, a Trimacy there to a reading list. And then the stuff in the middle is really consulting with the students, being really inclusive and saying, okay, what can I change? How can I give back some power? How can we co-create inclusively? That middle area is where I hope people will get to. And then at the extreme end, the radical end, is is the overturning the, even the concept of university, the idea of, of top-down learning. Uh, Fanonian stuff, the Palo Ferrero stuff, getting rid of the banking model of education and instead trying to think about a more collaborative model of learning, getting back all power, um, recognizing that, hey, education can be oppression, but done properly, education is freedom. I mean, I think I've been so lucky that a lot of the freedom I've had within my life, especially to overcome marginalization has come from education. What, what do you think? What, what do you think? Do you call I feel like I, I want to know what you think about these questions as well. Uh, tell me what your views, people's views on decolonization are so different as well. What are your views on what is decolonization? Um, I probably wouldn't put things like changing the reading list on. Um, I think you're being very kind there. I would, um, I think it does include structural change. I think it probably does end at some dismantling of the university. And this is something that I've read about a bit where people criticize decolonization because it doesn't speak to reparations. It doesn't speak to that accountability, which is needed in um, decolonization. So I think there's got to be some sort of outward movement and, and some also reflection to sort of acknowledge what has happened, why the system and the position is in the current state, but also how can we recompense people for uh, lifetimes of loss so I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know what this compensation and recompense looks like, but I think it is a really fundamental part of decolonization, which is often missed. Yeah, I, I think you're really right about that. That um, The way I tend to talk about uh, reparative justice is that obviously I think it is an important part of decolonization, but from a practical standpoint, really dark, but the way I see reparative justice is reparations specifically, let's take slavery specifically, they've actually been paid and they were paid to the slave owners. And other than actions to overturn entire power structures of nations, there aren't going to be significant um, steps that would be 
real reparative justice. Um, I think we just have to chip away at that, do what we can to try and reach some sort of convergence of where the world would be if we had acted ethically when European nations explored and pillaged the world. Yeah, it's for sure a tricky one. I'm going to ask a bit more of a specific question now. Think about health research in particular. So are there things that you want to see in health research and in qualitative health research around decolonization? Like what would it look like? Are there things I want to see? Yeah. So this week I've been on a machine learning late summer school and there was something really interesting that, that came out of this. One, the reason I'm getting into machine learning is to try and use automated systems to understand and reduce the amount of discrimination within the workplace. And one of uh, the speakers had this really interesting statistic. They, they were doing a talk on um, representativeness of samples and they were talking about pulse oximetry. And they said that a black patient has nearly three times the frequency of occult hypoxemia that was not detected by pulse oximetry as a white patient and how this dark skin responds differently to the wavelengths of the pulse oximeter. Now, I, I know that's a bit of a niche thing, but it really blew my mind. The, the problem here was that in the samples, when they were designing pulse oximeters, they didn't have people with dark skin. They were designing pulse oximeters, these life-saving devices that show you what the saturation level of oxygen in your bloodstream is. So they can be used um, in a lot of different situations, but this can be these can be life or death devices. And to not take into account darker skinned patients when you're designing that, and then years later to realize people of color die more in all sorts of situations. And now having a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020 saying, oh, we've discovered one of the reasons why we killed people. <laughs> it's, it's an opportunity to, to make change and to um, increase the diversity of the people that we speak to and really deeply understand why these health inequalities happen. But it's also really depressing that people outside of my area, people outside of discrimination are only really starting to, to make nods to these inequalities. I think a lot of this was COVID, I think, plus Black Lives Matter. COVID so terribly decimated marginalized communities and for a while, leading scientists couldn't really tell you why. And uh, yeah, not, not being able to say, hey, why is this disease having such worse outcomes for people of color than, than white people, especially in the UK, was such a nod to the fact that, hey, there were people that have done research on similar things. Their voices weren't necessarily being heard within these leading pieces of, uh, of research on, on what COVID was doing to the community. Thanks, Ricardo. About, that's kind of depressing, but it also, in the context of our podcast, like it does speak to maybe what qualitative health researchers can do to further the cause of anti-racism. I wondered if you could speak a bit about what an aspiring anti-racist qualitative health researcher could be looking at and how their work can feed into a larger movement. Yeah, so first, it's interesting, this idea of a qualitative researcher. So I, I've done quite a bit of qualitative research. I've probably done um, as much qualitative as I have done quantitative research. And part of that is because I try and answer questions. I'm interested in questions of inequality, injustice, um, health and fairness. These are the kind of areas that I'm interested in. So I'll pose the problem. For instance, why do people have worse outcomes um, if they're in a marginalized community? And then we'll try and apply as many different methods as I feel relevant to answer those questions. And one of the most relevant methods to understand why marginalized communities, for instance, have lower vaccine uptake is to speak to them, to speak to them as, as a peer, being able to uh, relate with the experience through, through language, through the way that they're approached, through, um, through recruitment 
to speak to the, these marginalized communities, to really deeply understand why it is that a person from a certain community might be more vaccine skeptical than another community. And you can't do this well or potentially at all from a survey. The data will show you the uptake difference, but the why, the what's going on in the mind of a person when they're trying to make that health decision for themselves, the understanding of the distrust, understanding conspiracy theories, understanding um, different community views on even things such as ingredients, like the, the ingredients that are put within within vaccines, often these are a choice. They could they could choose to not have alcohol. Some vaccines don't have alcohol in them. Um, yes, there is just tiny amounts, but if it was more recognised that certain things should just never go into a vaccine, then alternatives would have been would have been sought. And these aren't the answers, but these are the ways of thinking. And I also recognise my like in my reflexivity, I recognise my kind of privilege and uh, and current position in terms of being able to understand and relate to these communities as maybe a newer researcher or a, a researcher who um, identifies with a different uh, different belief system or something like this. But um, yeah, talking to people widely and answering the questions that are really difficult and challenging that the broad population data is, is suggesting, hey, we have this problem we're not sure why this community is having this issue. Um, that's where qualitative research and health is just so invaluable. Thanks for that. I think it was really interesting for me during the COVID uptake debates. The shock that certain communities were less likely to take vaccinations. It was complete forgetting of history yeah. and Tuskegee. That, that's what I remember saying this to one of my uh, one of my friends uh, who's a medic. Just didn't understand this at all. And my instant reply was Tuskegee, and they they didn't know about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And I said QED. Like um, that is. <laughs> Come on. The fact that you didn't even know that this happened. Um, sorry, I totally interrupted you there. <laughs> no, it's, it's an excellent point. And I, I, it was surprising. Sometimes we remove the history from research and where it really should be central to what we do. So I wanted to ask a bit about how we share findings as researchers, as qualitative health researchers. Like, Are there ways in which findings can be shared to be a bit more accessible, a bit more informative? Does that help contribute to, I guess, the cause of anti-racism? Is there something about that? And I guess this links back to the start of our, our podcast where we talked about Thorn Tools Journal and what it aims to do. So I just wanted to get a bit of insights onto how researchers should be thinking about sharing their findings to promote anti-racism. Yeah, the, the dissemination problem. So um, I guess as a qualitative anti-racist researcher, you have two problems. If you have a piece of research that's uh, both qualitative and anti-racist, it's that generally academic journals, the normal method of dissemination, favour quantitative research. And there's a lot of evidence to show that. There have been some brilliant open letters to suggest that, hey, we should publish more qualitative work as well. So you have that problem. Then you have the problem that um, research on anti-racism, um, research that overcomes systemic inequalities, isn't commonly published in lots of places. And obviously, that is one of the motivations that we have um, in creating Stolen Tools, being an outlet for that work exactly. An additional thing that I think you're doing with Stolen Tools, which is brilliant, is just recognizing different forms of dissemination, different ways of sharing data. The, the standard academic journal article was made for an experimental study that has a very clear experimental process with introduction, methods, results, discussion, that kind of um, format. And the qualitative research community has kind of fit into that box, but it doesn't necessarily have to. I mean, for some of my research, I use some creative nonfiction to create some videos where I took 
apart lots of different aspects of interviews that I had and turn them into representative cases that were just few minute long videos to explain, hey, here's a archetype of an experience that I've had. And th these were types of workers who had experienced discrimination and would turn them into different archetypes. And then through those on YouTube, at, with qualitative research, you've got this richness of data that can also be disseminated in a much more direct way with general uh, population than you potentially can with um, with some other types of research. So I think we have some, I say we, uh, researchers uh, have a uh, brilliant opportunity to really just share this work as widely as possible in creative ways, working with artists, working with filmmakers. Um, that's something I've done before, working with a, a filmmaker on um, on some creative nonfiction videos and disseminating, not always writing specifically for an academic audience. I feel like theory and different ideological approaches to qualitative and philosophical approaches, we can actually fall into the trap of becoming so hard to digest that our work doesn't become um, easy to read by the general population. So that can be quite sad to have just spoken to someone from a lay population and then turned what they said into something that a person with a lay population probably wouldn't even want to read. Um, so amplifying voices there, I think, is really important um, as well. Thanks so much, Ricardo. That That's really good points. I think personally, I really feel what you're saying about we are writing still in an experimental science setup. And I don't feel like journals so far have given me permission, not explicitly, but I don't feel like I have the permission to be creative in the way I write, even if it's for a qualitative journal, because it's so ingrained in training, in my reading, in everything that I'm just afraid that if I branch out a bit, I'm going to be rejected. Yeah. Um, I, that's just so true. Um, so this is interesting. I, I was doing some research on, on neurodiversity in the workplace. We were doing this, um, big study about people's experiences, um, of discrimination within the workplace if they were neurodiverse. And I just had this idea that came to me from the folk tales that I grew up on um, these Akan Ashanti, uh, folk tales of, uh, Anasi. I was thinking about the, the problem at the core of neurodiversity, which is, do we celebrate this? Do we recognize the difference and the positivity of that difference? Difference, or do we medicalize this and recognize it as a disorder, which sadly, I think, unfortunately, is what um, historically has been done to the detriment of, of a lot of people. It might have helped some people, but generally, I think this has um, created a lot of discrimination and stigma um, around neurodiversity. And I had this idea, and I just wrote a thousand-word tale a can folktale. And I sent it to a colleague of mine and and they were like, oh, this is really interesting. Um, probably a bit mad. Um, but he was like, it's a shame you can't publish stuff like this. And I remember thinking, I wrote this because I want to publish something like this. I found Nick Bostrom, um, a researcher on the future of humanity, had had also written a folktale before. And I had done my PhD on aging. So I actually had that in the back of my mind because he'd, he'd written this uh, parable of basically called the concept of aging a dragon. And he was arguing, it, it was a really interesting analogy in terms of the way that we fight this dragon of aging and, and all of the systems that we create to placate the dragon rather than fight the dragon of aging. Uh, and, and anyway, I, I ended up finding a non-conventional journal. I, I did submit this purposely to um, three or four different very academic journals, and they didn't even have places that I could really submit this type of stuff. I just submitted it as an editorial. It wasn't an editorial. It was a folktale that I just made up. And in the end, a journal called Aut, um, a journal of autistic culture, actually ended up um, publishing this. And so it can be done, but the fact that it's taken me this number of years in my career, and then it 
it probably took a good few months of pushing in terms of actually getting something like that published. And just the fact that it's so challenging to even decide, you know what, I'm going to talk about this problem or I'm going to try and conceptualize something in this problem in a non-conventional manner. Or in my case, I was taking uh, a concept of folktale that came from my culture. And that's once again, where I think Stone Souls comes in, because whenever we have these ideas, we're always trying to make nods to these more diverse voices and recognizing just different types of submissions. I was really happy we got a submission the other day that was different. And I'd really like that because I was actually worried that we were only going to get people approaching Stolen Tools with submissions that were at least trying to be academic. And that's really great when when someone submits something that's um, much more creative and recognizing a problem and talking about it in lots of different ways. The final thing, I, I randomly decided to get John Barnes's book on racism, a footballer, and it taught me so much, a different approach to, re- I've been researching racism for over the last 12 years or so and, uh, and experiencing it my whole life. And I'd never really, like pro footballers lived the experience of racism. I'd never really engaged with it. I remember thinking, wow, this is, I need to read more non-academic books on racism. All I ever read is psychological theories of discrimination and heuristics and biases. But um, yeah, lived experience, it's so important as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being with us today. I think that's almost all we've got time for, but can you just give the listeners a few links or books or papers where they can follow your work and all the interesting stuff you're doing? Yeah, I'll, sh- I'll share some links of some work that I've, I've mentioned, um, that fable of neuroplastic Lyra, I'll share that. And then most importantly, the link to either submit as a author to Stolen Tools, all sorts of diverse types of work, art, um, stories, academic work, all sorts of creative stuff. We hope we'll get submissions and we'll pay our authors. We're lucky enough to have funding from the from King's College, the Racial Quality and Inclusion Education Fund and the library for that. So um, I think that'll be a really important link to share and I really hope that people consider submitting that. And also we could do with some mentors as well. So there's a section on that site um, if you would like to mentor someone, if you feel like you have skills to um, take an early career, a young academic or author who hasn't really considered publishing in this way and guide them through the process. Because Sahel's idea is to accept people before papers and people who haven't necessarily written this um, this type of work before and guiding them um, and peer reviewing in kind of an open, inclusive way um, uh, might be a real change from being a reviewer too. Thank you so much. That was great plugs. So much appreciated. Thank you, Ricardo. And thanks to the listeners. So thanks for joining us. Much appreciated.